thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. As am I. I, I have so many questions. So just as a plug, um, the, the book is The Cryptopians, which I also plugged in the Twitter thread announcing this room, uh, which I thought was a, a, a fascinating book for, for a number of reasons. I, I literally finished it this morning. I have to say I had to cram it in at the last second, Laura. <laughs> um, and there's, it's funny, my first reaction is there's so much in it. And I mean, I, I, you reference yourself occasionally in it because, of course, you, you've been covering Ethereum uh, for years. But, I, you know, I, it almost felt like a Tolstoy novel where I needed like a glossary of names that just explained because there's so much drama and so many characters in the book. Yeah. Well, did you notice the list of characters at the front? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, no, no. Yeah. I, I mean, I I meant it almost sardonically. But yeah, there, and then not only that, there's a timeline at the end, which is also super helpful as well. <laughs> yeah. And I had to put a glossary. I mean, there were, like, I mean, it was a challenge because since Ethereum is, quote unquote, decentralized, you know, the, the list of 50 characters that you see at the front, this is after I narrowed it down. <laughs> I mean, there were just so many people involved and, you know, trying to figure out kind of like who was central at any given moment. And because, you know, it was decentralized, there are different points in the narrative when like certain people kind of rise to the fore of being, um, you know, the main characters around the action. And so that was why um, there just ended up being so many people that I eventually had to involve because especially like, I, I mean, I would say the the beginning and the end kind of are mostly around the same people. Um, but the whole middle section involving the DAO, um, that really was truly the most important thing happening in Ethereum. And it just brought in a whole host of new characters. And even the people at the beginning of the DAO were different from the people at the end of the DAO because, you know, the DAO just spawned all these things. And so it was like the people that created the DAO were one group. But then when the hack happened, the people that kind of initially were rescuing things were one people. And then by the end, the people that were kind of finishing out um, getting all the money back to people and all that, that was a, a, you know, some of them were the same, but many of them also were new characters. So all of that, um, you know, was just super challenging. And then on top of that, trying to write it in a way where people who don't know anything about crypto can just pick it up and understand it. Like, I mean, that was another challenge. So, um, you know, that's why I have all that supplemental material, but I did have my real life friends read the book or read a draft of it before I sent it out. And, um, I really think that helped a lot because, you know, they're, they're not crypto people. And so, um, they said things like every time you used an analogy, it was so helpful. So I like went back through and I threw in a bunch more analogies. Um, and so hopefully it's, you know, as accessible as possible to an everyday person. Uh-oh, hello? Sorry, I I didn't manage to unmute myself quick enough, sorry. Um, yeah, I know, I, I we, we did hear all that, Laura. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you explain it very well because, of course, a lot of the developments are very technical, although there's a lot of human drama. What's interesting is the juxtaposition of often the most, like, sordid human drama possible, actually, <laughs> um, alongside what, what actually is some pretty stunning technology development, which just as a summary for those who maybe haven't checked out the book, although I suspect uh, the pull request audience tends to be pretty tech savvy. So I'm, I'm sure they've, uh, they've at least heard about it and they know the basics, but just to summarize, um, Laura's book is probably like, I, I'm guessing probably the only book that actually takes a comprehensive, you know, historical, but also kind of in the trenches and deeply sourced take of the creation of Ethereum and much of the sort of, you know, smart contract, the 
crypto world beyond just Bitcoin, right? Beyond just emailable gold, which is Bitcoin, the whole world of crypto that came after, um, along with the rise of ICOs and other projects and, and the DAO project that you mentioned, uh, you, you, you cover all of that, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, what I like to say about what the book is actually about, like I understand that most people say that it's about Ethereum just as a shorthand. But actually what I set out to do with the book was to explain how the 2017 ICO craze happened. And so um, that's why, because Ethereum was really the main the thing that enabled that to happen. That's why like 75% of the book feels like a history of Ethereum. But then, you know, kind of toward the end, it branches out into multiple different storylines and you see kind of like other things that happened during that mania. And I, you know, purposely wanted to explore some of that because um, frankly, a lot of it was just bananas. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it does go beyond Ethereum by the end. Right, right, right. I, I, yeah, I should make clear. I mean, you, you fixate on the, the the Ethereum Foundation for obvious reasons, but there's a lot that happened in that swirl, right? So it's it's not just Ethereum. I mean, I, I would say it's it's the entire crypto craze, right, from like 2016 or 17 or so on. Um, yeah. But but you mentioned this. <laughs> you mentioned lightly. You know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened. One of the things that strikes me is that again, this was this was deep. This is deeply meaningful technology, right? That is that has created billions of dollars of liquidity in cash just globally, and then, you know, often millions of dollars of liquidity for the people involved. And yet, one thing that strikes me, and I don't mean to ding, again, a, a group of technologists that actually created amazing new stuff, but some of it seems so childish, <laughs> and so incompetent, that it's just like, man, and it's, it's almost like watching a train wreck about to happen, when you see management errors kind of happen along the way, like any sort of formal corporate governance around the Ethereum Foundation. Um, one of the characters who plays a big role in your book is, is Ming, who's the sort of kind of, you know, almost villainous Bengali character who kind of insinuates herself with Vitalik, but then is eventually booted for, you know, being difficult to work with. Um, and there's just so much drama around it. And it just strikes, and mind you, that's true for a lot of early stage startups like this, that I wouldn't say that's necessarily unusual, but typically startups, they either die of dumb drama or they mature out of it, right? And they either get different management or the CEO takes coaching or something. Um, and yet somehow no, nobody ever staged an intervention, at least as far as I could tell in, in the book. Oh, you mean around men? Uh, it's more globally, right? I mean, um, I, I mean, I don't want to necessarily fix it on, on one character in particular, but I, just in general, it seems as if, you know, so, some of these, some of these things are, are, were majorly risky. Like what you said at the end, um, the problem with the $150 million that were frozen due to basically a coding bug, right? And that's the sort of thing that, not that it doesn't happen in larger companies, of course it does, but it sort of, you know, it, it was sort of consistently happening and then handled in a very kind of random way. Like it wasn't quite clear what the Ethereum Foundation should do. And it's just, it's just amazing to me that the stakes are so high. I mean, it, we're talking real money here, right? This is not just some dinky little startup. And yet, it's still basically almost run like some open source project or something. That, that's what struck me as a, as a contrast. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what the Ethereum Foundation would say it is. Um, but, but like, yeah, I don't know how quickly you had to read the end of the book, but um, just to go back to the Ming thing, um, there were definitely people who they would describe what they did as staging an intervention around Ming. <laughs> so... Um, you know, there were people who for years were very concerned about that and um, finally decided to try to 
figure out some way to handle that. So it's well, not like, yeah, right, it's not. Yeah. I, I got, well, right, right. No, no. I mean, at the end, they, you know, she finally gets the boot in that meeting on uh, in Union Square in San Francisco. I, I guess I, I guess when I say intervention, I guess I mean, in, in your traditional tech situation, if there was some executive who was like wrecking the company, the board would have stepped in and, you know, like formally either fired the CEO or fired the executive. I don't know. Some some piece of corporate machinery would have stepped in. But in this case, it seemed like it was a little bit more informed. But, you, but you're right. Yes, there was a number of people who kind of raised the alarm along the way. And in fact, much of the arc of the story is exactly what, what they did. Yeah, yeah. But you're right that um, there were really no adults in the room. You know, at that point, um, she had gotten the the initial board members that she was inducted with booted. And so, um, you know, she, she just had a lot of influence. And um, Vitalik was very young, very non-confrontational. He probably still is. And, um, you know, it, it, it does appear that she used that to her advantage. Um, I should say, you know, I never spoke with her, which I do reveal at the end. So hopefully it's not too much, too much of a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it. But um, it's one of those funny things where um, so many people described her perspective on things as skewed or delusional or, you know, not based in reality or whatever. So, um in a way, I think by the end, once I had heard from so many people about her perspective, I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's better that I like, you know, didn't end up including her. I don't know. Um, but what I felt really comfortable about was even though she comes across as this almost cartoon like character, because just everything seems so extreme in the way that people have, you know, were describing her, et cetera. When I got so many of her chat logs and I could hear from her in her own words, then I felt comfortable with what they were saying because I could just see it on the page. I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Like, no, they're not um, just like making things up. They're, you know, like their words are based on reality. So um, that was a process for me, though, because I've never had people uh, describe someone to me in such an extreme way. Um, And, you know, it's just it's just like a, you know, kind of what, what, why is that happening? Or why, um, why do they make her seem unreal? You know, it's just the question that was in my mind. Um, so then when I got a number of the chat logs then I felt much more comfortable with what they were saying. Well, it's funny you mentioned the chat logs because again, you know, the, the feeling of the book is that you're almost there because it's so deeply sourced. You've got lots of direct quotes from the people involved and it very much feels almost like, you know, a Netflix series thriller, right? in which there's like a cliffhanger <laughs> almost every chapter page because there's always some weird drama that's going off. And I, you know, and then, you know, if you read enough of these books and I read almost like every serious tech memoir or reported thing that comes out because I wrote one myself and whatever, I'm in the space. And, you know, one of the games that you do when you, when you, when you read these books is like, okay, so like who is writing out who here? Like who is the source? Unless of course it's in memoir, it's an internal person, they're a principal. And then it's a little bit less kind of juicy of like, okay, well, like how did the person you know, how did the journalist sources? I definitely played that game with uh, Mike Isaac's Super Pumped, right? Which often paints a not terribly flattering picture of, of Uber management. And it, and you eventually figure out who his sources are, right? By the end of the book or the end of the Netflix series. So I'm, I'm curious in your case, to the extent you're willing to talk about it, how did you manage to go, how did you manage to go about reporting this book and again, sourcing it as well as you did? Because you're, you're mentioning, you know, little chat logs that you read. I mean, clearly a, a lot of things were shared with you. So I'm, I'm curious how you went about, um, you know, reporting on the book. You know, the funny thing is that 
I barely knew, like, like if I just think about what I knew about Ethereum or any of the ICO stuff at the time that I got the book proposal, it's literally like maybe a tenth or a fifth of what actually went into the book. Like I had kind of heard a little bit here and there that, you know, people wanted Ming gone like in the fall of 2017, but I did not know anything beyond just that. And so to uncover, you know, that huge storyline and like how long it had gone on and just you know, all that. And, you know, as you know, that's like just one of many storylines in the book, you know, all the stuff about the Tao. I mean, so it like, frankly, I um, very early on uh, talked with Vitalik. I did a number of kind of longish interviews, just trying to like understand what was going on uh, in his mind at various important points in Ethereum's history. So I just picked you know, here, here's all like the main events, like, you know, we just ask him kind of what were you thinking at this time or that time and whatever, and just trying to figure out through that lens, like what was important, what was not. Um, and then, you know, I just kept hearing from people like, oh, you have to talk to so-and-so, you have to talk to so-and-so. And, um, frankly through that, you know, you kind of quickly figure out like who is willing to work with you, who kind of understands what you're trying to do and, is going to be helpful to you who is more PR-ish in their approach and um, won't reveal anything unless you, you know, like really probe and, um, you know, just basically doesn't want to share. Um, and so for the Ming chats, I think because, like I said, I was uncomfortable with how extreme the descriptions were of her. Um, I was asking people, you know, because, because they were talking about her, her chat logs and, um, it just things like the walls of text and, you know, like th those little things would come up in conversation. So then I'd ask them basically just, do you have any of the Skype chat logs? And the sad thing is that Skype actually deletes your chat history after three years. So, um, most people didn't, but there were a few resourceful people who, I, I forget what they had done, you know, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but you know, there were certain of them who did have some logs and that was, uh, how I was able to get some of these things, um, you know, for, uh, you may, I, I don't know if you'll remember, well, maybe since you just read it, you'll remember it, but there is a shocking phone call in the middle of the book. Um, I, I won't give it, I won't uh, give away a spoiler too much about it, but let's just say somebody proposes something and, uh, it's like kind of criminal ish. Uh, you know, the, the laws around crypto were so unclear that, whether or not it was actually illegal is unclear, but, um, like, you know, most people would recognize this is something shady that's being proposed. And so multiple people told me about that conversation and I felt very nervous about mentioning it, let alone like trying to recreate the dialogue. Um, you know, because I'm saying like, Hey, this person proposed this super shady thing. And, you know, this is a person who's like incredibly wealthy. That was the other thing. Like everybody I was writing about, they have like a gazillion dollars each, you know? Um, so I just had to be very careful. And ultimately <laughs> I found out someone had a recording of that call. And the good thing is that, um, well, so initially, I mean, who knows? It may have, I may have gotten the tape regardless, but what happened was at the time that I figured out who had this recording, we were in the pandemic and, um, you know, I feel comfortable saying this person was in a different country and I was in, you know, the U S 
and we just, we could not like see each other at that time. It was just the way, you know, I forget what it was like, you know, June, 2020 or something. Um, and they kept saying, well, you know what, we'll meet in person and I'll hand it over to you. And I was like, okay, wait, when do you think that's going to happen? Because, you know, this is when my deadline is. And right now, like we physically, like we're prohibited from seeing each other because of, you know, where we are physically. And so finally, it took me months, but finally after, you know, X number of months, I was able to convince this person. And well, actually, I don't even know who sent it to me. That's the other thing I should say, because I don't know if they had the tape. All I know is that eventually I did receive this tape after I, you know, uh, felt that I had persuaded them. So, so anyway, so that was amazing because then I could actually quote the conversation word for word and there, you know, then it was just unassailable. It's like, I have this recording, um, you know, like it's totally fine to publish because the evidence is like in my hands. So, um, yeah, there were just so many things like that. Like, that's why in my acknowledgments, I think, you know, I profusely thanked my sources because I definitely recognize that, um, I mean, in 5 million different ways, they just helped make this book so much better than it would have been if it had just been me trying to, you know, <laughs> um, take the interviews and then, you know, pull something together. Um, it's really because they sent me so much material that I felt that I was able to create that kind of moment to moment feeling of like, you know, you're there with, uh, with everyone as it's um, happening. Yeah, no, and it's so clearly better source than many books of the genre. Again, like I, um, I actually interviewed Emil Michael, who, um, again, again, side note, referring to Mike Isaac, super pumped, who was Travis's number two. And in a similar interview to this, um, we, we kind of went over a lot of the timeline. And I, unlike in your case, I suspect, um, you know, he's like, yeah, that was sort of true, but not really. And there's this whole other context that, again, that person was missing or that uh, Isaacs was missing because, of course, he basically had one source in the company. <laughs> it was basically dishing to him. But in your case, right, it's your the action. I mean, if this were made into a Netflix series, and if you want to announce that, in fact, you just sold the Netflix, Laura, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> um, then there would be like jump cuts all over the world, right? From like <laughs> from like Tulum and DevCon to, to Tsug and Switzerland to back to San Francisco. It would be like the most James Bond thing except where the center of the action would be Vitalik, who it's interesting. And I, I would, you partially answered the question I had, which is how, how well did you get to know or how much did you speak to Vitalik? Because, you know, towards the end of it, uh, at the end of the, the I, I think it's either in your epilogue or the last chapter, where, you know, Ding Dong, the witch is dead, Ming gets the boot. Um, you know, you get into a little bit of Vitalik psychology, which is interesting because obviously I've read a bunch of stuff from Vitalik and seen a bunch of stuff, but I've never seen someone kind of explore <laughs> his more personal side. And you kind of get into how he matured as a person and realized that a lot of the people that swirled around him did not have, you know, his best, you know, his best interest at in mind, nor that, nor those of Ethereum. And he was getting kind of wise to the world and changing. Um, and so I'm curious, yeah, what's your relationship with Vitalik, you know, then, now, and yeah, I don't know if you could fill in a little bit more color. I think a lot of listeners want to hear about, yeah, what's, what's he really like? Yeah, so... Um... It, I, yeah, there's there's multiple Vitaliks. Um, so let's let's actually we'll we'll start with kind of um, the period that the book covers, and then we'll talk about uh, you know during the time that I interviewed him and then now, um, as I mentioned you know in the book because you've read it <laughs> so you know uh, he definitely started off as this naive and awkward teenager 
and you know really had a lot of people manipulating him and he just couldn't see it because he really was so naive he's a very pure person um i think frankly because of the aspects of his personality that make him different from other people he doesn't have the same sort of um shoot what's that term when you when you yeah well he just he can't um kind of uh, put himself in other people's shoes mentally the way that I think a lot of other people can, or at least at that time he couldn't. And so this leads to kind of a lot of the early management issues where eventually, you know, other people in Ethereum had to call out certain people as being, um, as having maybe basically nefarious intent uh, with, with Ethereum. And over time, you know, it takes him uh, what is that? So the book, yeah, it's it's like roughly four years. It takes him kind of a long time to mature, but, you know, granted, I mean, he started Ethereum when he was 19, or at least it's when he had the idea. So um, he <laughs> very quickly, um, yeah, just learned some real basics about humanity that just because someone shows one face to you doesn't mean that that's how they really are. Um, you know, it kind of took him a long time, frankly, because like, even though he may be sort of learned it with Charles, um, I don't know if he's ever really learned it with Ming, frankly. So, um, you know, he, I think there might be certain blind spots that he just has, but definitely by the end of the book, um, he had had enough of those experiences that he kind of, um, began to figure out who is a true friend and what makes a true friend, a true friend. And he found a group of people who, we're more like him in that, you know, I, I obviously know a number of these people and I obviously they're, I don't think they're, um, they have the same kind of social skills issues as he does, but they're definitely sort of more pure and just like fun and friendly and optimistic kind of people. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily ones that would have an ulterior motive about anything. Um, so, you know, I could see how they and Vitalik would sort of vibe. They're sort of like nerdy, um, kind of just genuinely like, you know, nice people essentially. Um, but because he has that blind spot around understanding people's true nature, I think that's also why by that point he kind of had certain like trusted advisors essentially. And they did a lot of the vetting for him. And there definitely were certain people in the Ethereum community who didn't like that. That was the way things were done that felt that, um, you know, it was sort of this like gatekeeping kind of thing. And uh, in in particular, they were actually suspicious of one of these people, you know, felt that this person kind of controlled Vitalik's schedule, controlled a lot about Ethereum. Um, you know, it gave rise to a lot of this criticism called Ethereum's shadow government. Um, so people can read about that. Um, but by the time I started my book, um, it was maybe like nine months or so, or, or like eight months after the book ends. And um, when I started with him, you know, he was very open to talking to me and we kind of went into as much detail as he can give. Like he, I'm not going to say he's the world's most introspective person. Um, there are certain people in crypto, I can interview them, I'll ask them one question and they will just talk for like 20 minutes. Um, oftentimes with Vitalik, I would ask him something, he'd give me a one sentence answer. I'd have to like 
pounce on some of the words he gave in that question and and like milk it for more and just do that every single time for every question and try to come up with five different ways to ask the question based off of the one sentence he would give me. Um, you know, sometimes he, he might be a little bit more, um, uh, not loquacious, but you know, I, I'm so tired today. So I feel like my, my vocabulary is a bit limited. Um, but he, you know, he made me, might be more talkative when it came to certain answers. Um, but by and large, you know, it just really felt like I was kind of ringing a lot from a stone. So I just would keep asking and asking and asking. And he gave me a lot of access. Um, you know, we did multiple phone calls, in-person interviews. There were a lot of text chats. Um, however, you know, he, he does feel sensitive about some of the issues in here. So there was one conversation that we were having. And... Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I like have my questions and I'm kind of looking at my document and I'm, we, we weren't, it wasn't a video call. It was a phone call. And, um, I asked him something and yeah, I, he, he just suddenly shouted at me and it was really shocking. I was not prepared for that. And, um, it was, it was, um, you know, like a moment. And so I uh, didn't didn't quite know what to do at that time. I think there was sort of a long pause because I, I was just like a little bit shocked. And then, um, you know, I, I, so I don't remember exactly what I did, but I think I like tried to ask him a little bit more about it. Like, you know, why, why are you having this response? Like that kind of thing. But then it is true. After that, he stopped talking to me. So... Um, I wasn't done with my reporting and he spends a lot of time in Asia, but I saw he was going to be at East Denver. So I booked a flight to Denver <laughs> and, uh, showed up and within five minutes of walking into the East Denver conference, I sp spotted him, walked right up to him and asked him basically, you know, please finish this in these interviews with me. Like I, I do have more questions. This is really important. And he did agree to that um, and, you know, finished it out with me. So it was, it was definitely tense uh, at certain times. Um, unfortunately, you know, like, so you probably know, uh, or maybe you don't, I don't know, because um, I, I know, uh, you know, publishers do not require that books be fact-checked. Um, so whether or not you did that for your book, I, I'm not sure, but but in this case, because of... I, I did not. To, to, just to answer your question, which many people find shocking, which maybe it is or it isn't. But I, I have, just as a comment, because, you know, I, as you know, someone who's written a book, you get lots of questions about how, how books are written because it's still this dark art. So fact-checking, particularly because fact-checking is so in the news now. So fact-checking, for those who aren't familiar with it, and of course, Laura, you're more, you're more familiar with this than I am, is a major deal in like written magazine, particularly at high quality publications. A lot of publications don't do it anymore, but it's super expensive and so much work to do, even for a 6,000 word piece. It's basically impossible to do for like a 90,000 you know, word book or whatever, which I, I, I don't, maybe you know better than I do. Is that why publishers don't do it? It's basically impossible to do for a book? So, you know, I don't, so my fact checker and I talked about this a lot. Um, because we find it's absolutely shocking that publishers don't require that books be fact-checked and that magazines, which are seen as sort of throwaway, are so rigorously fact-checked. And my fact-checker worked at Vanity Fair for like a really long time. And, you know, he's done like a whole bunch of books and stuff. Um, but because my book involves all these wealthy people and I was revealing all kinds of things they didn't want revealed, 
um, I did hire a fact checker and you're right. It was complete and total hell. I mean, I've never, like, I think I said in another interview, I've never been such a, through such a brutal hazing in my entire life. Like I essentially nearly lost, like you could say like five or six months of my life where I literally did not go out except for four different occasions, which were two of them were my vaccine shots. <laughs> um, and I just, w- it, like, I just was kind of constantly working. It was like sleep, exercise, work, and then like eat at some point during the day and then sleep again. And like, that was what I was doing pretty much that whole time because uh, trying to fact check this kind of book where you have like so many different people and you know, the stakes are kind of high. Like it just was, it was like, yeah, hugely onerous. Okay. Well, I mean, you confirmed my theory. I didn't really know, but I, I, I mean, I, it, in my case, it's funny you mentioned Vanity Fair because Condé Nast for all the, you know, trolling you might get online is still one of these old school publications that still invest in a lot of fact checking. I mean, in my case, I wrote, I mean, I had one piece come out in Vanity Fair for Chaos Monkeys, but most, most of my reporter writing was for Wired Magazine, which also continues in that tradition. And I remember I, as a random side thing, I reported on the internet in Cuba in 2017 and they actually sent someone to Cuba where you can't legally be a journalist. I was reporting illegally, and so was presumably this person, to go and fact check. The, they sent somebody else to Cuba to go check my sources and that everything else was correct to, to give wow. you know li- listeners some idea of what a pain in the ass is, this is. And there's, there's so many names and so many quotes in your book. But yeah, I was about to say, like, it must have taken you months, literally months to do this. Cause there's, oh, my God. It yeah. was absolutely terrible. Like, I, I truly... I mean, I'm so glad I did it. I think it was necessary. Like, I definitely wouldn't have felt comfortable publishing the the book that I published if I hadn't done it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was quite the undertaking. Um, but the reason that I mention this in the context of the Vitala question in terms of my relationship with him now is that part of the fact checking process is that you run by you know the people who are in the article or the book or whatever everything that's going to be said about them in the book. Um, and Vitalik, um, it, I mean, it, it, he doesn't care about, you know, what, what's said about him. It's that he suddenly realized, oh, certain people that he cares about, they're not going to come across well. And so I think that between that and then some other issues, um, I think he wasn't happy and he, you know, it, like, you know, the way that he would frame it is that like, a journalist's job is to pick what's important and like editing certain things out is like an important part of the job. Um, but you know, to my mind, what he's saying is like, it should have been more PR ish. Like it should have been more positive on Ethereum. And I presented everything good and bad and he didn't like that. So, um, so anyway, point is he has not spoken to me in a very long time. He just at a certain point just completely stopped talking to me. Um, even when I, you know, messaged him before, uh, my Dow attacker article came out, you know, I, I said, by the way, you know, I, I believe I figured out who the Dow attacker is. Do you want to comment on it? You know, it's somebody that you've interacted with and he didn't even respond to that. So, um, yeah, I still try though, because there's, there's kind of a lot going on in Ethereum these days. So I did reach out to him recently asking him to come on the podcast for something or other, no response. Uh, I'll try, I'll follow up, but yeah, I don't know how long it will take before he ever speaks to me again. If he ever does, he may not, <laughs> I don't know. So, um, but you know what? I can continue to cover Ethereum without him. So, huh. uh, you know, not a big deal. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it, you, 
again, to get back to Vitalik, I mean, we're describing as as naive, which maybe is a little bit unflattering and reductionist. I mean, the impression he gave me, and again, I don't know him at all or I've ever spoken to him, but um, he's he is naive in, in a childish way, but also supremely well-intentioned in a very unself-aware way, right? And oh, I think yeah. you said earlier he, he lacked empathy, which is, is hard for anyone to pull off. And in fact, what we do is we... We tend to project our mentality on other people and call that empathy. But of course, it's not empathy. It's the exact, I mean, I don't know what the, the opposite of empathy where you're imposing somebody else's worldview on them thinking it's their worldview, but it's not, right? And that, in some sense, was his view because Vitalik, again, like you said, he comes off like a hippie. He's like this crypto hippie who is worth gajillions. And yet all he does is like travel around and stay in Airbnbs and hang out with friends, right? And so he's not the sort of hard-edged crypto bro in a Lambo, although there's plenty of those characters in your book as well. Um, it, and so, and yeah, that person may have difficulty under, you know, dealing with people who are the Lambo bros, right? Because they're very different sorts of people. And, you know, one thing, and this is like a high level question, Laura, I don't know if you thought about it, but, you know, I, I, I've been in tech, I don't know, going on 20 years now. And, you know, I know, I, I, again, I don't know Vitalik, but I know some of the other people in, in crypto or in tech who, like Vitalik, I think are, are brilliant geniuses, you know, at creating or imagining new states of the world that are hard to imagine, but then can also be supremely naive and uninformed about how the world actually works, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've often asked myself, like, you know, because, you know, often I'm asked to comment, like, what makes Silicon Valley unique? Or, you know, the tech bros get constant criticisms about being naive or idealistic. And often I wonder, it's like, well, do, do they need to be, do they need to not understand how the world works to imagine the world working in a fundamentally different way, right? And I think the, the more I initially in my early days would think, oh, no, that's just a reductionist argument. You can be both worldly and innovative. But actually, the, the more people I meet and the longer I stay in this world, the more I think actually, no, to be to be truly disruptive, you sort of have to not understand the world. And that that necessarily means I'm standing right here in San Francisco. That necessarily means that, you know, a tech city is going to have a tech contingent that doesn't understand how a city even runs, right? And um, But yet we'll come up with technical solutions to the way that it doesn't run well, right? And so it, it's this odd, anyway, I'm rambling here a little bit, but- No, I, but I'm, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Yeah, because, yeah, you, you might remember this funny moment in my book. It's not really a moment. It actually became a philosophy that a lot of these coders adopted. But um, early on, Gavin like makes this speech about how um, it's about decentralization, essentially. And he talks about how Bitcoin has become this force of nature and that a force of nature is what he calls illegal, which is, you know, not legal or illegal, but like completely outside of the, of the legal system. And um, it's very funny to me because that is something that inspired a number of these people. And, you know, who knows, like, what's really going to happen. Um, but... At the, you know, at the moment, I would say that, like, just certain things, like, for instance, the whole DAO hack episode, and then up not even um, mapping on to what Gavin said, like, he had this idealistic notion that it would go that way. But instead, you know, um, this person uh, exploits his vulnerability in a smart contract that enables them to steal a lot of money from the DAO. And instead of Ethereum, Ethereum people being like, oh, well, you know what, code is law, so therefore that money is rightfully theirs. They really treat it like a theft. And they really treat it the way we would treat it in the normal world. And yes, a lot of people say code is law, da-da-da, but um, they end up being 
uh, sidelined and Ethereum hard forks to, you know, retrieve this money and prevent the hacker from getting the rest of the money. So it's just funny that like, you know, when it came to being abstract, they were like, oh yes, it's all illegal and da, 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 code is law. But then when it came down to like having real money on the line, then, you know, forget that. It's like, we're going to, we're going to go to, you know, to the, uh, the normal way of looking at things. So, um, anyway, yeah, I just find it amusing. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, that's one of the most stunning statements about Ethereum. I think that's one of the first statements Vitalik years ago that caught my attention. I mean, I was, I, I am very late, relatively late to crypto, um, was the whole code is law business. And then understanding that, in fact, you know, the, the reality of finance will unfold and, and strictly speaking, code laws, right? And so the DAO hack was one example, but there's been hacks since then that um, I forget the name of the project, but basically it was, it was a 51% attack in which um, someone used a flash loan. I wouldn't be dropping a bunch of Web3 lingo that um, some listeners might struggle with, but basically they, they basically borrowed money in this weird way that Web3 enables and then bought 51% of a governance token. And I forget what the project was, but then basically emptied out the treasury, which you can do, <laughs> 51% of the vote. And none of it was, strictly speaking, illegal, right? It wasn't even a hack in the strict sense that, oh, code behaved in ways that it wasn't supposed to. It's like, no, everything behaved as it should have been. Just you had like a hostile raider who borrowed money in this weird way, the legal way, and then just emptied the treasury. And like, that's the end of that, right? <laughs> um, and it's like, well, and like, you're right. I think, you know, the geeks here are a little inconsistent. It's like, well, we meant code is law, but not that way. It's like, well, no, this, this is what happens when you abandon. <laughs> that, and that, you know, that's part of, and you see this a lot. I think the techies are like a, a lot of their fantasies about, you know, they're dissatisfied with reality. And so they imagine a world beyond it. And so they imagine this kind of anarchic crypto libertarian Mad Max world. And it's like, why do you think in that world, the people who make the computers work are the ones who run the show? <laughs> it's like, it's, a, it's an odd fantasy. And it's like, I really don't think, not that I think this is actually going to happen, but if there actually was some like post-nuclear apocalypse, like I, I really don't think the network system bins are going to be the ones, you know, telling the, you know, the guys in, you know, the Mad Max vehicles across the desert commanding them. Like, I don't think that's how it's going to work. Um, so, um, anyway, I don't know if you have more thoughts on that or, or the whole code is law thing where that's going to end up with crypto, but it, it does seem to be a problem. I mean, just, just last week, um, I published a piece on privacy and privacy gets a little bit of airtime in the crypto world, but it's funny. It's discussed in this very abstract, again, almost academic way, but there actual there actually is legislation and practice around privacy now. And you see very little conversation about how to actually comply with privacy law like GDPR, right? And again, it seems like it's one of these bizarre disconnects between the sort of technological theory and then the practical legal reality. And they, they like to think they're beyond the law until bad things happen. Then suddenly, oh shit, that's right. That's why the Leviathan state exists because human life is complicated. Yeah, there apparently is a case in Canada right now that is trying to test this philosophy of code as law. And um, shoot, I hope I can find this link because someone sent it to me and I like meant to read it. But then, you know, every day you have like five million things that you want to read and I never got around to it. So now I'm like, oh, shoot, can I find this link? <laughs> or maybe I can just Google it. But um, but yeah, uh, as far as I understand, I think that's the first time that this is going to be um, put to the test in a legal system. But you know, personally, I, I think that most likely it might be some kind of, um, you know, like mishmash where in certain instances it might be that code is law. And then in other instances, um, it may not work that way. Um, like, I don't know if you heard, so in the recent bankruptcies involving like Celsius and Voyager and all that, um, Celsius had to repay its 
DeFi loans um, before it uh, filed bankruptcy. And, um, you know, so they were able to get like, you know, a lot of the assets that they had put into the, into these uh, systems back. Um, but people were saying like, oh, look, this shows that DeFi works. Like the smart contracts got their money back before the, um, before the, uh, the, you know, the customers essentially, or, or these other creditors. And, um, I, you know, that, that is one way things could happen, I, I think. And at the moment that looks, you know, like what happened. Right. But then I had these, uh, bankruptcy experts on my show and they were like, oh, well actually, um, there's a thing called clawbacks where if there are certain transactions like that in a certain window before the bankruptcy, then that money can be clawed back to, um, you know, to put everybody on a level playing field, basically. Um, so that, you know, it, like, let's say all the creditors only get like 60 cents on the dollar or something, then any, any of the parties that had received money and I think it's like 90 days before the bankruptcy, then they could also be subject to that. Like they may have to send some of the money back and it's like, okay, well, how do you do that with a smart contract? Unclear, but it is true that, you know, who knows the bankruptcy, uh, judge or whatever might determine that that has to be done. And so anyway, who knows what will happen with this, but that was just like a funny thing that they said. Like, I think everybody thought that was settled like, Oh, the smart contracts got their money back. And then, yeah, now these lawyers are like, not so fast. So yeah, I think all this just like remains to be seen. I mean, even at the most basic, you know, governance level, we talk about the Dow a lot, right? And, you know, Wyoming has passed a law that makes a Dow an actual corporate entity, but that's kind of a meaningless statement, right? Because if, again, if the value doesn't get transferred in the way the law stipulates, because cryptographically it can't, then it doesn't matter. Then the law is irrelevant, in some sense is irrelevant. Um, although some would say, well, not necessarily, they can make men with guns show up and sick you in jail. Um, but, <laughs> but, but that's, that's the disconnect, right? That again, the, the crypto libertarians are imagining a world in which, because and here's, an, here's an, another deep thought, though. I don't know what you think about it, but it's interesting that um, when I first started reading about Web3, you started reading things like trustlessness and permissionlessness. And those, those things have common meanings, but they also have technical meanings in the, com- in the context of Web3. But they're not that different, right? They're not. I mean, it has a precise technical meaning, but it also does mean vaguely what you think it means, which is you're not trusting anybody, right, in the architecture of this thing. Or there's no permission that can, right, in theory, you can't even gatekeep permission from interacting with transactions and smart contracts on chain, right? And that, cons- that is considered a virtue, right? That, that is, in fact, a, pr- a design principle of, of Web3. Um, and, you know, it, it's almost as if they're, they're wishing for the world, or, or and sometimes they've lost all faith in institutions, and instead they put their faith in, in math instead, right? But again, that, that math is kind of heartless and impervious to, <laughs> to human entreaties of fairness and justice, right? Yes. And, um, and, and again, I don't, you know, and again, this gets back to the point of like, maybe to truly be disruptive and innovative, you have to kind of not understand how the world actually works and not how, not, and, and frankly, not understand how the, work, how the world could work, actually, right? Yeah. Because it, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. or just, yeah, choose not to understand or like just choose to look at it differently. Cause uh, you know, I, I can see that for certain people, uh, in the book where, yeah, they just, they sort of live in their own world and, um, don't have too many touch points with reality. Um, but then there are others where they're definitely like savvier people, but they just, um, yeah, they sort of disagree and they think, well, you know, it should be done this other way. So, um, so I think it depends on the person, but, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, um, 
yeah, again, it's it's very unusual um, that it 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 it's odd in the way, right? Because one of the refreshing things about crypto and Web three, right, is that it actually seems generative, and that it, I mean, as flawed as it might be, as naive as it might occasionally be, they they do have some future vision of the world that's very different than the current one, right? And and most of the political spectrum these days is some form of nostalgia in one form or another, right? You either pine if you're a traditionalist conservative, you pine for the 50s. If you're more of a centrist, neoliberal, whatever, you pine, you pine for the Obama days. But very few people actually have this generative vision of the future that says, no, we're creating a new state of the world. This is what it should be. And here's the way to actually get there, at least in the technical side of things, right? Um, ju- just last week uh, or two weeks ago, or sorry, eh, three weeks ago now, sorry, it was July 4th, I interviewed Balaji, who you might know, major voice in crypto, he has a book called Network State in which, you know, he makes the case for a sort of network state seated around the crypto idea in terms of like actual political power. And it doesn't mean this has like some virtual multiverse thing. He means it as like actual boots on the ground, right? Like a circle on the map that says this is the state. Um, and, you know, some might think it impractical, but I, I think it's interesting. And again, it's compared to all the other models that are being shopped around. Like it's the only thing that's kind of novel and new. Right. Um, and for side reasons that aren't worth going into here, I think people should probably pay more attention to it than they currently are. Um, but so, so to me, it's refreshing, right? On the one hand, it's generative. On the other hand, it's like, man, do we really want a trustless, permissionless world? <laughs> it's, it's not clear we would. Um, but it, I don't know. Again, getting back to like, does Silicon Valley need to be so so weird and so like out of it to actually succeed? I think the answer is yes, right? Because I've lived in Europe. People there in Europe would often ask, like, what does Silicon Valley have that we don't have? Or, like, why isn't the magic working here? And I think a lot of it is that, right? It's a total disconnect. It's, it's a willingness to basically say, either not know about or, or, or play dumb to and just be ignorant of how the world has traditionally worked and just imagine entire new worlds and say, we're going to instantiate that. And, and, and the downside of that, though, is that there's lots of negative externalities to that. And, again, this is one of them, right? Like, you can't claw back anything, right? The code says... You, you own $150 million or we just burn $30 million in ETH. Like, that's the end of it. There's no way to get it back. Well, like I mean, no, they could they could have, like, a governance proposal that oh, right. goes up yeah. to the smart contract. And, yeah, I mean, there's a way to do these things. Um, but, interestingly, you know, much of Ethereum was created in Europe by Europeans. Right. Yep. I mean, Gavin and Jeff were the two main coders of Ethereum. Gavin's British. Jeff is Dutch. Um, a lot of the people under them that were working were, you know, German or Hungarian or, um, I mean, they, they just, yeah, French, whatever. Like there's just a lot of Europeans that were involved. Um, so, you know, I would say, uh, you know, not so fast when it comes to Europeans thinking that like technology isn't happening there because (laughs) Ethereum, which I think, you know, is definitely one of the most consequential new technological developments of the left of the past like 10 years is that's basically it. It came out of Europe. Well, sure. I mean, so, so did the World Wide web, right? <laughs> Originally, but that's not, I mean, sure. But Americans are great at taking any concept that they've either stolen and imported for somewhere and just like amping it up to 11, both in terms of like funding and attention and interest. And um, it's funny, I'm hiring now for, for web three people and you're absolutely right that it's more international than a lot of traditional tech. And yet, if you look at the, the world's largest crypto VC funds, where are they based? <laughs> most well, of the US. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Americans, like the US is like richer than most other right. countries. So right. it's just where the money is. But, um, you know, well, I mean, one other thing actually just, so can, obviously Vitalik himself is Canadian. So 
you know, the idea for it came from a Canadian. Um, but somebody said something really funny to me once. Um, so I can't remember the full kind of comparison they made, but they, um, you know, must, they must've said like, oh, Bitcoin's this way because of blah, 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 or whatever. I don't remember what they said, but then they were like, oh, but you know, Ethereum is very Canadian. <laughs> they were like, it's all about like egalitarianism and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm sure there might be Bitcoin people who say, oh, no, 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 there was a pre-mine and like, you know, people got like huge amounts of coins in the beginning, but still that was implemented by other people that basically persuaded Vitalik to do that because he didn't want to do a pre-mine and he wanted to do just like, you know, basically a fair launch kind of the way Satoshi launched Bitcoin where there wouldn't be a pre-mine and it was just like whoever um, hooked up to the system and started mining coins early, they would be the ones to get the coins. Um, and he just got talked out of it. Uh, but yeah, besides that, I would, I do agree that Ethereum, you know, it's the rainbows and unicorns crypto community. Um, and I sort of agree that it does have this Canadian flair to it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I used to joke that like, you'll never hear a venture capitalist sound more communist than when they're talking about crypto DAOs. <laughs> they sound, <laughs> sound like Berkeley hippies. And it's like, I don't know. And if you actually look at the governance, a lot of these DAOs, like, um, I did a piece on the whole ENS um, Brantley business, which was the scandal about how this one guy got kind of canceled, but then there was a delegate vote and then the vote was kind of split. And, you know, there's an entity that yeah, actually... But he voted to, to keep giving himself the power, which like that's bananas to me that he like, yeah, I think he should have recused himself. But anyway. Uh, uh, sorry, you mean Brantley from his own delegate vote? Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, I, I don't have an And he had the largest yeah. amount of tokens. Yep. So yeah. he definitely tipped the vote in his favor. Like, I find that a little bit, like, he definitely shouldn't have done that. I feel, I think that's unethical, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't have a strong view on it. I, I did speak with him to, to write my piece. I think I quoted him in the piece. Um, I mean, I, to me, the lesson there was just, you know, again, some weird dramatic thing happened. This guy had allies. He had enemies. There was also an entity in Singapore that actually employed the people that actually built the thing, which is separate from the DAO. That other entity fired him because, of course, it's run like a traditional organization. Um, anyway, it just seemed like a total mess. And it was because it was this corporate entity interacting with this DAO thing. Um, and, and it was just a very it was it was a good test case for exactly what we just described. Right. Which is what you have, like an old legacy institution like a, I think it was a I think officially it was an NGO, but whatever. It's a corporate entity of some form or another interacting with the DAO and which is just math and and. I guess some people could look at that and draw different lessons. Some would say, well, see, crypto worked exactly as it should. Here's this guy who is actually liked by many people. And so a vocal minority can't basically cancel him and fire him. And some would say, well, look at this mess. Like there's actual work to do. And it got subsumed into all this drama. And at the end of the day, he got fired anyhow. So who cares? And I, I guess everyone can walk away feeling vindicated. <laughs> oh, the no, drama. but no, the, like I said, the part about how he had the most tokens and yeah. they tipped the vote in his favor and voted on him the proposal involving himself. Like, I think that's another part of the scandal. Like, I think that's another part of the mess. And I, like I said, I, I feel like it was inappropriate for him to vote. And then on top of that, vote for himself and tip the vote in his favor. <laughs> but, but, well, I, I mean, again, I'm not saying I agree with it, but, but it, that's not, that, in some sense, that's the spirit of Dow democracy. It's one token, one vote. And he just happened to have more of them. I mean, it, it's, that's kind of how this quote unquote democracy is, is meant to work. He didn't subvert anything by doing that, right? I mean, well, we, no, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, in most cases like this, like, you know, you would recruit, recuse yourself because the vote is about you. So like for any traditional type of vote, like people would be like, yeah, you can't vote on a thing involving yourself. 
Um, but then the other thing was that, um, shoot, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, people actually don't agree that it should be one token, one vote anyway. Like, I don't know if you follow the whole quadratic voting thing. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know, quadratic voting is a way of weighting um, proposals that get votes from a higher number of entities more than votes that get proposed that get votes from a smaller number of entities who maybe have more coins. And so if you go to like, I think it's WTF is QF or something, um, there's a calculator on there and you can show, oh, like, you know, proposal one gets one vote from 10 different entities and proposal proposal two gets 10 10, uh, coins worth of votes from one entity. And then you would see that, like, if you're going to grant funding between the two proposals, then pr- a proposal two only gets 10%, and proposal one actually gets 90%, even though they technically have the same amount of coins allocated to them. Um, so I, I feel like that's the way a lot of cri- crypto communities want to go. Um, or I don't know if, like, literally all of them, but um, but that's, like, one of the ideas out there. This, this sounds like the Electoral College, Laura, is what it sounds like. <laughs> Yeah. Well, not not exactly, but it's the way that they call it is it's prioritizing the preferences of the of the many and the poor, maybe over those of the few and the rich or something like that. Um, Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, again, why does Rhode Island have two senators as much as California does? Right. It's It's a similar thing in which you're I mean, in this case, it's not democracy in that there's no question of having individuals counted individually, right? So they, they use the token, which, again, it sounds a little weird. If I said $1, one vote, most people probably wouldn't sign up to that because it sounds a little... <laughs> although what, some would claim U.S. democracy now is basically that. But, you know, it sounds weird. But the quadratic voting thing tries to make it feel more democratic in that it's like... But then, you know, somebody might respond, well, guess what? In the same way that people object to granting equal Senate, you know, wait to Rhode Island as they do California. It's like, well, land doesn't vote or whatever, right? So why give it these unpopular states? Like, well, entities don't vote, tokens do. Anyhow, I can just see the exact same dynamics playing out. And at the end of the day, everyone's going to be talking their book and whatever privileges, you know, the power that they have in the arena. It's just funny to see all these same arguments that we had in like the Constitutional Convention playing out for this DAO governance thing. It's kind of, um, I find it kind of, it kind of reminds me of the, um, like the rationalists and the effective altruists, right? If you try to reason their way and then they end up just rediscovering the same principles that we as a society have discovered over like centuries of history. Um, yeah, no, I, I have thought about that so many times, actually. Uh, yeah, just, just what you said, that uh, these crypto people are having all these experiments with governance and they like end up relearning a lot of the same lessons have, that have been learned throughout history. But it's like they have to go through the process to do it. I don't know. It, it's fascinating to watch. I love it, actually. Yeah, no, I've often joked that, like, again, all these rationalists and effective altruists who are trying to reason their way through a human morality, like, after 30 years of blog posts, they arrive at, like, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> don't kill people, don't steal, don't screw around, and don't be envious, and you know, <laughs> literally the exact same five or six moral principles. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, but, hey, you know, sometimes you need to discover it for yourself for it to have meaning for yourself. Um, yeah. So, Laura, we're, we're getting to, close to the end of the hour. It, it sounds like you've been tired, probably due to travel, because you've been promoting a book. Um, I'm happy to end now, or there occasionally, since it is a live audience, although, again, it does get, um, this does get syndicated out as a, as a regular podcast, we occasionally have guests come up and ask questions. Uh, and if you're willing to do that, we can do that. But if, if you're all kind of tired out and, and, and don't want to, we, we can end here as, as you like, Laura. Um, 
Yeah, I can take a few. Okay. And, and it's funny, sometimes the most provocative guests don't actually spur guests, and then sometimes the most inoffensive guests <laughs> spur like a line of callers. So anyhow, anyone who's listening wants to ask uh, Laura a question about probably the most versed person in the history of Ethereum and crypto <laughs> at this point. So as a side question, Laura, I mean, you, you dropped, again, because you're a little bit in the story because you've, you've reported on it a few times, you mentioned your own reporting career on it. So you've been basically covering this for since the beginning, basically, right? For, for no, Forbes? No, just oh, no, just seven years. Yeah, oh, since 2015. Oh. Okay, but th- okay, but that's like, that's almost the entire, I mean, <laughs> seven years is a long time in crypto. Well, I mean, I mean, there are journalists who started covering it in like 2013. So, huh. um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a lot longer than a lot of other people. But, uh, you know, like I said, I definitely can remember when I started in 2015, looking up to the people who'd been covering it already for a while. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's why I don't consider myself like one of the <laughs> oldest. But anyway. Well, the the joke in crypto, right, that the like the Web3 job listing is like, um, you know, must have 10 years of experience in crypto and like crypto hasn't been around for 10 years. <laughs> or strictly speaking, I guess it has in the historical sense. But as like a thing people knew how to code, it really hasn't been around that long. Um, but uh, OK, so yes. OK, so I well, that's very humble of you, Laura, to actually, um, you know doff your hat, so to speak, to the, the ones that came before you in the, in the reporting game. Um, has, has there been any other good crypto book kind of written that isn't, I know there was like the one by Mesrick on the Bitcoin this or that, but, you know, kind of post-Bitcoin, post-Bitcoin bro meme, ha, have there been any other good books? Or I, as far as I know, yours has been the only kind of serious book about it, or, or am I just not? Um, you know, I really like Nathaniel Popper's Digital Gold, which talks okay. about the beginnings of Bitcoin. Um, it, like, I, I guess I would say that like our two books probably make a good companion set in the sense that his covers early Bitcoin, mine covers early Ethereum. And I think his book ends, I think if I remember correctly in 2015 and my book starts, I guess tech, I mean, it depends where you start. It sort of depends on your perspective because obviously I include all, all this stuff like Vitalik's kind of high school years and like, you know, kinds of things like when he was a Bitcoin magazine journalist or whatever. But the real action, you could say, starts in like early 2014. And Nathaniel does not talk about Ethereum in his book, as far as I remember. So, um, you know, I would say between the two of them, they kind of cover a lot of that history. Um, But yeah, there there are other books on, um, on Ethereum as well. Uh, but I definitely noticed like a, a lot of the reviews are saying like, you know, definitely mine is kind of, if you're only going to read one on Ethereum, it's like uh, the one to read basically. No, it sounds that way. It's weird. Cause when I wrote chaos monkeys, part of the reason for writing it is that there, there are very few insider books written about tech, right? I mean, not, not zero, but fewer than you would sort of think. Um, and I, I, even outsider kind of reported books, there's very few, I used to report, I used to review tech books for Washington Post, actually, back in the day, uh, shortly after Chaos Monkeys. And so a lot of them will come over my, across my desk, and I've probably got, like, one shelf of this bookshelf filled with, like, galleys of these various books that would come on and get sent. And I'd, it's funny, I, I guess I, I'm kind of a softie at heart, although people wouldn't guess that. And so, like, a lot of them were frankly bad. And then <laughs> so my editor would ask me, like, you want to review book actors? Like, eh, it kind of sucks. And, like, I could review it, but then I'm just going to, like, dump on it and I'd rather not do that. And so I would just skip it. Um, but I'm looking at my shelf right now and yeah, there's Mesrick. That's not, by the way, that's not one of the ones that I refuse to review, just to be clear. 
Um, but there's a few others here that it's like, yeah, they kind of suck. I, I don't know what it is. It, I, I, again, it's another thing getting back to the question of like, do techies have to like not be wise to the ways of the world to do what they do? I think for some reason, <clears throat> the thought of like properly documenting in a conventional book form what well, here's one actually I did like. I'm looking at Billy Gallagher's How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, uh, the Snapchat story that I thought was pretty good and I positively reviewed for WAPA. So there's there's a positive example. Um, yeah, and actually yeah. I forgot about another one. Um, the reason I forgot about it is because it initially came out as an audiobook. So I actually never physically read it, but it's Kings of Crypto by uh, Jeff Roberts, who uh, is with Fortune. And it covers the early, well, this is not even the early, it covers the history of Coinbase, basically. Um, I forget what year it came out, maybe like 2019 or 2020 or something. So um, I think it takes us through Coinbase until, you know, some period before then, basically, like before it went public. Huh. But that that's a, that's a pretty good one as well. Okay, I need Je- to listen yeah, to that. Yeah, Jeff is, he's like a really great reporter. Okay, I'll have to listen to that because I know some of the early crypto people, but I've never... I've never read anything like a serious history of, of early Coinbase. Of, among the many mistakes I've made in my career, and, and there are many, one was, I remember I had a conversation with Brian Armstrong shortly after I left Facebook. Back, I don't think he had even found his co-founder then. And he's like, yeah, why don't you come join us and work on product here? And I'm like, well, I don't know, this Coinbase thing. And I went off and did something else that was completely stupid. But um, everybody, everybody in tech has that story. One last question, Laura. Do, do you own any crypto yourself? Are you willing to go on the record and say whether I, you own crypto or not? So I personally do not, but my business does own a little bit of ETH and Sol for business purposes. Like I had to get my .eth domain names and mm-hmm. we've done things like make NFT tickets and um, just trying to think of what else. I like I, I have a, a thing that I do with Facebook and I had to like buy some NFTs to be part of their NFT pilot and like... Anyway, so yes, I own a little bit through my company, but it's not like for investment. It's just like every once in a while for my work, I have to like do things in the ecosystem. So, and you, and you were never tempted to to jump ship to the to the you know to the tech side of it and join one of these companies or no or no, no no no. no. <laughs> I, I have had I have had so many well not so many but I've had a number of people be like oh you know we really want you to work and like write for us and you know be our communications officer and you know whatever like even chief marketing officer i'm like do you know i haven't done like a single second of marketing in my entire life like but, but neither anyway. have they but neither have they laura yeah. they don't know what they're doing they're even more clueless than you <laughs> um but i i'm just a writer first and foremost i have wanted to be a writer ever since i was nine years old and i just that's like my passion and you know, writing this book was a dream and, um, a dream come true. And, uh, I just want to do more of that. And so for me, like personally, the last few years of my life, it was like roughly maybe 60 or 70% book stuff. And then like 30 to 40% podcast stuff. It was like the perfect kind of lifestyle and mix. It was just, yeah, amazing. And so I kind of want to just continue that basically. Like I already have my second book deal. And oh, wow. I love- can yeah. we, is that public or is that we can't talk? Is yeah, that no, I, I tweeted about that. Um, mm-hmm. It's about the Dutch and Razzlecon case, uh, which are the couple that the government accuses of laundering the Bitfinex hacked coins from 2016. Uh, it was $4.5 billion worth. And the woman, you know, she did a lot of raps online. So people kind of were really into just looking up her raps. And um, <laughs> so. Um, Interesting. I, as, a, as a total side note, I know the male side of the equation. He was 
in the YC batch, I think one batch after me. Oh. And we hung around a few times. You know, I, I you know, we were friendly. I wouldn't say we were our friends, but we were friendly at the time because we would run across each other. Um, and I think they had offices in the same co-working. Um, and then he got, you know, he came off as a totally, you know, inoffensive techie. When I saw that news come out, it was like, it completely blew my mind. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> Is laundering billions of dollars? So it, it, that sounds like a fascinating case. I would, um, man, that's amazing. That, that sounds like a great book yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. Um, actually, you know, the one thing that will be really challenging about this book is that, um, it's not like my, so actually, well, I don't know if that's exactly the case. So with my other book, I did have the two other competing books that were coming out well, they actually both came out before my book. So, um, you know, that was obviously, you know, and, you know, anyway, it's just, it's just a little weird. Right. Um, and with this, I don't have any competitive books that I know of. Um, but they already announced a Netflix documentary and there's going to be a Forbes documentary. And I already know there's like a CNBC show coming out about it. There's like all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, that's just a little bit of a concern. I myself am actually working on something competitive with my book, which is a narrative podcast that I'm doing with a company called Law and Crime. And they approached me, you know, shortly after after that came the news came out and uh we decided we're going to work on this together so um but in a way i actually like it because it's just you know i've never done a narrative podcast before and i um just am excited basically to try a different medium um but yeah so the point is that um i will continue kind of the same blend of things i mean i'm still gonna you know try to add new things here and there in a certain way but like for my personal, you know, cause so I have this company, right. And like, I can hire maybe different people to do different things, but in terms of what I'm doing for at the company, like I'll try to keep it to, you know, what I've been doing, which is, like I said, some portion book, some portion podcast. Um, but yeah, it's been really fun. And that's why I've never been tempted to go work at a crypto company because I just personally love what I'm doing so much. And I, I basically, the way I like to describe it is that I have a front row seat to the most suspenseful and exciting movie ever. And it's going to last decades. And so like, why would I give that up? Like, I'm not going to, um, it's just, yeah, it's no, honestly, Laura, every I, second I, of my work day is like a delight and so fun. I, Laura, I think you need to totally ruin your life and open a crypto crisis comms firm. That's what you should do. <laughs> and literally every hack or every legislative or every regulatory blow up, you, you should be like on the speed dial for every crypto person. No, that's how, no, that's how you can ruin I'm, your life. I'm sure my listeners already know I, I, I'm like constitutionally incapable of trying to put a spin on things. I just, my natural personality is just to be very interested in the facts and to want to really know like what actually happened. So I, I would be like the last person you'd ever want to hire for anything PR because like I, I, the truth is so important to me. I, it would be basically impossible for me to try to cover anything up. Yeah. It's true. That is kind of a handicap in the uh, PR business. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, Laura. Well, thank thank you for your time. I I, I won't take more of your time. Uh, I'm sure um, you've been very. I know what it was like, even months into the post chaos monkeys thing. You must be totally bone tired. You must be flying around. You must be doing endless interviews. Is it finally no, no, coming? No, no, no. We or? we put the kibosh on that finally okay. in June. So I've actually had six weeks to kind of reorganize my life because, um, yeah, it was 
uh, like I said, I, I, did I say this to you or somebody else today? Um, yeah, the months after my book came out have been the busiest time of my life. Like I've never, I, I literally did not know what it was going to be like. And now I'm like, whoa, the next time I do this, I need to be prepared because it was a total marathon and yeah, very exhausting, but, but so wonderful. And so many people, you know, came up and like said great things. Like I had like 5 million people be like, I work in crypto because of you. You know, I launched this hedge fund because of you. Like my wife works in crypto now because of you. I mean, I was just like so much of that. And, um, yeah, like my, my first official book event at the strand completely sold out and they were turning people away at the door. Like I didn't expect any of that. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was, it was such a whirlwind, but like in the best way possible. So, um, yeah, but I, it's true. I'm like glad to be spending more nights like in my own bed and, um, have some time to organize my apartment and stuff like that. <laughs> Great. Yeah. No, um, after that same period, I literally went to the woods with a backpack and like disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad. That's how bad it is. Um, I always tell people, as you know, one of the occupational hazards of writing a book is that everyone who has like a book idea gets referred to you for like advice, right? And um, I always tell them, no, do, just just don't do it. It's like the worst. It's it's going to eat up years of your life. It's it's probably a terrible. Oh, thing. I loved it though. Wait, you, wait, you recommend people don't do it? Yeah, well, I think it was like so awesome. I like like can't wait to do it again. <laughs> In the, well, in the same way that I recommend people don't do a PhD in science because I was like mired in that in that morass for for years. But for the, those for those for whom here's here's the logic behind the strategy, Laura. For those you know for whom doing that is like the only thing they want in life, they're going to ignore me anyhow, and so they're going to go and do it anyhow, which is good, which is perfect. They should they should go and do it because that's that's what they that is their goal in life. But for most people, I probably think they probably shouldn't get into book writing. But oh, wow. you know, but okay. but well. But of course, I'm biased. I abandoned my second book idea. I went back and actually worked in tech because I something about something about being the observer and the chronicler and not actually doing it, it just always doesn't sit well with me. And so I, I, you know, I I who can at least fake creating products and I've done so occasionally always feel the need to actually create the news rather than simply report on oh, it. Oh wow, we're but so that's different. Just, we're so I, different. Exa exactly, yeah, exactly. I love being the chronicler. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cool, Laura. Well, um, I will let you get some well-deserved rest after this book promotion. The The book is The Cryptopians. It's, uh, I do hope it gets turned into some sort of series because there's so much material there. I think the only downside would be that there's no way they could actually, there's too much material in the entire book. They'd have to limit it to one particular period, or one particular set of characters. Otherwise, again, it would be one of these Tolstoyan cast of hundreds um, to film this thing. But I hope it does happen because more of the world, I think, even Super Pumped, which I, I think probably misrepresented Uber in a, in a bunch of different ways, at least does give a taste of what that early startup world was like. And I, I don't think the popular media covers enough of how the sausage actually gets made in tech. Um, so I, I hope more people read your book, Laura. Um, Thank you. And thanks for having me on this show. And yeah, I hope um, your listeners do check out the book because there is so much more crazy news in there that we did not discuss. And I think your minds will be blown. Yeah, I was imagining that. I was imagining, like, there's quite a few bodies that you turn up in the book, to be clear. You don't shy away from the controversy. But I'm guessing there's probably even more. And, like, the, some of the characters at the end were never even properly identified. Some people changed their names and disappeared at the end. It's a total cliffhanger at the end, what happens for these people. It's incredible that they really do just drop off the map and just, like, that's it. They're just gone. You never know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say too much about this, but for one of them, um, I'm pretty sure I know who it is. Um, so yeah, they, 
they're not, I don't think they go by, you know, the name that they were in the book by, but anyway. I'm not going to And, and hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, hold on. But you've built up so much. So has it happened, Laura, that like this stranger walks up to you at a train station or the airport and say, actually, I'm XYZ and I want to say the name and, you know, I hated the book or actually, you know what? I like the book, but by the way, X, Y, Z, actually, did, did that ever sort of scene at like that Hollywood like scene at the end ever happen? Or that's never, or like an email from the blue saying, I'm so-and-so and this is what actually happened. Did that ever happen? No, no. So for some of the people that don't come across well that um, I didn't interview, I sent them fact-checking through multiple different people, multiple different times. So they, you know, they have like no excuse uh, for you know, I, I gave them multiple opportunities. Um, so, you know, if they don't like their portrayal, then, you know, they made their choice to not talk to me. Um, however, uh, yeah, I will say that one of the people that doesn't come across very well did something already uh, in in this short time since my book has come out. They did something vindictive to me. No, actually, if I recall correctly, it happened even before my book came out. After we had sent the fact checking and they realized everything that was going to be in the book about them, they did something vindictive to me. They like screwed me over. And, um, it, you know, all this was done kind of through the PR people. And I emailed the PR person being like, Hey, wait, how did this happen? And I got no response. So I knew then it was done on purpose. <laughs> so I was like, Oh wow. Okay. So that's how it's going to be. <laughs> um, but man, yeah. but yeah. wow. But it wasn't like anything like serious. It wasn't like a decapitated no, horse's head in just, your bed or something. Yeah, there was like news that was going to come out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, because it's something where like, you know, it was not positive news, let's say, about this uh, entity. Um, I had to, you know, gather all the negative stuff that was going to be said or whatever and then go to them for a comment. And um, they made it so that like they didn't give me a response until 15 minutes after another outlet had already published. And so then by the time I would have published, it would have just looked like I was kind of reblogging this other thing because they gave me the exact same quotes. And so it was just like a weird thing where like, I guess I could have published, but by then it was just like, well, I'm going to look like an idiot just literally publishing nearly the same exact article, but like, right. Anyway, whatever. Oh, so, but it was, okay. So it was like a minor, it was like a minor petty media thing. It wasn't actually. Yeah. Like yeah. But I had spent thing. already like eight hours on the article. So, you know, right, it's right. kind of annoying okay. that I like lost a day's worth of work basically. Got it. So, okay. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, one thing that's right as a side note, and we'll finally stop the show after this is that in crypto, again, there's like real money flying around like hundreds of millions, if not billions. And yet you don't see, I mean, there's like, there's like petty dramas, of course, in the scheme of things, but there's no like murders there's no like militia I, somehow if there was that much money in the underworld it, you you know it would be even more dramatic than it is and yet somehow because it's like a nerd fight it, it, it never it never actually gets violent um, yeah i, I have to say like you know what i was saying before about how i was nervous about publishing these things that these people wouldn't want to be known um and how they had a lot of a lot of money like i was never scared for my personal safety you know because of what you just said like i was like okay, yeah, they're, they're not going to be happy, but like, is one of them going to physically harm me? No, <laughs> you know, like, it's just like that. That's not the kind of person I'm dealing with here. So, um, yeah. So well, I just, yeah. Well, thank, thank God for that. Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again, Laura, the book is crypto, the cryptopians go out and buy it and read it. Um, what is the name of the, the new narrative podcast you mentioned? Laura? Oh, we don't have a name yet. Oh, We're still working okay. on it. Yeah. So it'll just, okay. 
yeah, we're, we're going to release like the first episode or two on the Unchained feed so people can get a taste and then they can subscribe at, you know, wherever we release it. Great. Well, I'll, I'll definitely listen myself. Um, thanks again, Laura. And thanks yeah, everyone thank for joining you. us. Thanks so much. I really sure. appreciated this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, and, and you probably, the, the, the episode will go out very shortly and then it'll go out in, in Apple podcast and all the rest of it. So it's shareable. I'll send you a link when it comes out. Um, okay. okay. Thanks. Perfect. Thanks, Laura. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Bye. Everyone. Bye. Bye.